Hey, welcome to Summit. How you guys doing this morning? Nice. That was enough of a grunt that I feel like like at least half of you guys are awake. But uh, hey, my name's Nathan, and I serve on the equipping team here at Watermark, and it's my pr- privilege to be with you guys this morning. And uh, I'm going to pray for our time, and then we're just going to dive right in. We got a lot to cover. Romans three, right? So, Lord, thanks for this opportunity. Thanks for the uh, just a, thanks for the fact that we all woke up this morning. And uh, that wasn't promised to us. Um, but you're good. You're good to us. You're good. Your, your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great to us. And so we're grateful. We're also grateful that we have a, a community that we belong to that spurs us on and encourages us to dive deeper um, into the scriptures to encounter you. And so I pray that that's what would happen this morning, that as we look um, at these pages, at the, the words that you inspired Paul to write, um, I pray that we would... Uh, not just read words on a page, but um, encounter the person um, of your son, Jesus Christ. So we offer this time to you and pray that you would come and teach. Um, so we love you, Father, and pray these things in the name of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, so where are we? Well, we're in stage two at Watermark. <laughs> That's where we are. <laughs> but where are we in the book of Romans? Um, some of my... Uh, some of my real estate friends, uh, you know, and you guys know this, but you, the, the key to real estate is what? Yeah, right. Location, location, location. Well, the key to uh, a methodology for studying the scriptures responsibly is context, context, context. So you got to know. You can't just open the Bible and start reading and, and expect to be pulling out the the meaning of uh, the text in a way that um, is right and good. In fact, a lot of times when we just open our Bibles and start to read, um, we're bringing so much baggage to the text that if we, if we don't do the hard work of determining and discovering the context, then what we do is, is we read meaning into the text. And that's the wrong way, right? So um, we gotta know the context. You gotta know the historical context of who's the author, who's his audience, why is he writing these things, what's, the, what's going on in, in that time, in that place. Um, how would they, when he's writing words, how would they have heard him um, in, in his message? You've also gotta know the theological context of what's going on in his argument of the book and how it all fits together. How does this section fit in with the broader section of Romans, and then how does that section fit in the book and the message of Romans, and then how does Romans fit within the broader context of the New Testament, and how does the New Testament fit in the broader context of the, of the entire scripture, right? So I, I know that that can sometimes feel like it's a daunting thing, but we have to do it. If we don't do it, then we miss it. Um, so I think when we start to talk about context, it's the best thing to know from a historical standpoint that when Paul is writing to the, to the church at Rome, he's writing both to Jews and to Gentiles. If you, um, we've been in Acts on Sunday morning, it seems like for a couple of years now, you know? So if you've been there, then um, we've been in Acts for a while and we keep taking these breaks, which draws it out even further. But um, in Acts chapter two at Pentecost, if you guys remember this, the Holy Spirit is poured out on, uh, on the, the body of believers who are in uh, Jerusalem and all kinds of craziness breaks out. But um, they, people are hearing the gospel being preached in their own language. They're amazed. Verse seven in, of chapter two says they're totally amazed. These, these, pe- these people are speaking in, in language that we understand. And some of those people who had come to the Feast of Pentecost that, that day were from Rome. They were Jews from Rome. 
Um, both, both Jews and then verse 11 of chapter 2 says both Jews and converts to Judaism. So we know that there was a thriving Jewish community in Rome in the, uh, in the early first century. So these people are coming to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. And when they're there, they encounter the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, some of them convert to Christianity. And then they take Christianity back to Rome. Right? But it's not just Christianity a lot, of, a lot of the times the way you and I would think about it, where 21st century Americans were sitting here going, okay, yeah, salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, you know, uh, and, and as products of like the Reformation. I mean, we, we see these things now in our context, and it's difficult to understand that, no, actually in the first century, the Jews, um, in fact, you see this all throughout the entire New Testament, and so a lot of what Paul is writing against is that the Jews received Jesus as the Messiah, but they received Jesus as the Messiah and also wanted to maintain um, their old way of doing things, which was to attain righteousness by works of the law. And so the vast majority, frankly, of everything that Paul writes in the New Testament is, is instructing people in their relationship to the law. That, this, is, this is one of the central messages of the book of Romans, is what is our relationship to the law? Do we have to keep it anymore? You, read, you keep reading in the book of Acts. And even when Paul comes back to Jerusalem for the last time and then is sent to Caesarea and then on to Rome where he loses his head, um, the, the, we see the church in Jerusalem still struggling with this, like decades in. They're still struggling with how, what's our relationship to the law? Do we have to continue to keep the law? And so, um, in fact, we, we don't know exactly what, what, uh, what happened, but we know that the, those Jews took Christianity back to Rome. But then we, we know that there was, uh, uh, based on just a, a bunch of historical context, that when the Jews got back to Rome, it was, hey, what, what's the Jews' relationship to the law? And then also, do we include the Gentiles? And if we do include the Gentiles, what is their relationship to the law? Like, it was all about the law. Um, and you got to remember, I mean, these people had been, uh, had grown up being, being just deeply formed into the idea that God has made a covenant with us um, and that if we keep the law, he's going to, um, he's, he's going to keep his end of the bargain. And so it was very much a conditional type relationship with God. We keep his law, he keeps his promises. And, and that was the way that the Jews, uh, thought of themselves in relation to the law. Well, when Paul begins to say, no, actually it's not by the law, but by faith in Christ, that doesn't bode really well for a people who all their lives have been thinking, no righteousness can be gained through works of the law. So now all of a sudden when Paul shows up and says, actually, no, Jesus fulfilled the law and the, and the prophets and all the writings and he didn't abolish it, but he did fulfill it. And so now the law is obsolete right? The Jews have been so f deeply formed in the law that now when Paul says, no, the law is obsolete, now all of a sudden they're going, wait a second, who are you? Right? You're not just, you're not just teaching some teaching. You're, you're threatening our very national identity because the way we view ourselves is in relation to the law. And now you're telling me that it's gone, it's obsolete. I don't think so. So we see this actually in, in uh, Acts chapter 18, verse 2, when, when uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila um, come to Italy because Claudius had kicked everybody out, all the Jew, he'd kicked all the Jews out of Rome. He just said, hey, y'all are out, right? And we know from Suetonius, who's an early uh, historian, he says this in his uh, life of Claudius. He said, since the Jews were constantly making disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, 
Claudius expelled them from Rome, right? Well, most New Testament scholars and, and most historians think that that Crestus um, reference is a reference to the name of Christ, right? So there, there was so much stirring up in Rome about Christ that, um, so much so that Claudius was like, hey, you guys, are, you guys are causing way too much trouble, just get out, you know, and they did. So we know that from a historical standpoint, like this was not, and a lot of times we think like, oh, this was just this real easy, clean process, and it definitely was not, okay? Um, when, when the gospel came, and especially the gospel that Paul is preaching comes to Rome, which is salvation by grace alone through faith alone, um, that didn't spin real well with Jews who very much viewed themselves in relation to the law. So that's the historical context. I think the theological context um, of this is, is definitely Paul saying, and we'll see this in a minute, but Paul is, is, uh, starts his letter in verse 16. He's like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the Jew first and then to the Gentile as well, right? But then in verse 17 of, 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 of chapter one, he says, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed that is by faith from first to last, Right? And then really, you have from, from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, you almost have this like parenthetical statement that is, um, you, everybody has sinned, right? So the flow of Paul's argument is, um, there are no excuses for the Gentiles who, because of the general revelation of God, God has revealed himself sufficiently to them so that they are without excuse. So the Gentiles are guilty. But then the Jews are like, yep, they are, right? If you're a Jew and you're hearing Paul say, you're hearing this letter read to you in Rome in the first century, you're like, you're, man, you're right, yes. The Gentiles suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. How dare they, you know? Until Paul gets to uh, chapter two, verse one, and says, hey, oh, by the way, you um, have no excuse, the ones of you who pass judgment on the Gentiles, because when you're pointing your finger at them, you condemn yourself because you're doing the same thing. You might think that your identity is in your intention to keep the law, but you don't keep the law. Nobody keeps the law. And, and so the Jews are like, yeah, get the Gentiles. Oh, wait, what are you saying? You're saying that about me, right? Uh, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't like you anymore, right? And so let's fight about this and get kicked out of Rome. Um, and so there, there's no excuse, not for the Gentiles, not for the Jews. And then we, uh, that's chapter two, the Jew, the, the moral man is sometimes you hear, you'll hear it called the people who think that they, by their good works, can have a right standing with God. That's chapters one and two. But then um, we get to chapter three and Paul's argument is going to begin. He's gonna answer a series of questions that I'll go through here in a second. But he's basically just saying, no, not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, everybody's guilty. Right? You all stand condemned before God. And so um, what are the questions that Paul is answering um, in chapter three? Well, the first one is, it, again, you gotta, hear, you gotta understand why he's asking this. Because if you're a Jew in Rome, and you've been deeply formed in this way in your relationship to the law, then you very naturally have some of these questions. Well, guess who Paul was? Was Paul a Jew or a Gentile? He was a Jew, right? So he anticipates what their argument is going to be because he is one of them, right? So he's like, well then, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? And, and he answers that by saying much in every way. Now, again, there's going to be almost another parenthetical statement because he doesn't come back to answering this question until he gets all the way to chapter nine, right? <laughs> Which is crazy. But, uh, there's this whole section where he just goes off on the salvation that's found in Christ alone. 
Um, but he says, uh, there's much in every way that you have an advantage. First of all, you've been entrusted with the very words of God. Right? God has passed along to the Israelites um, his law, his, his words, his testimony. But again, the Jews um, saw the words of God as, hey, do this, don't do that. Right? Um, do these things and I'll bless you. Do these things and I'll curse you. Right? It was very much a, a sense of, okay, yeah, there's this covenant. We have to keep it. But oh, by the way, nobody really wants to talk about how nobody keeps it. Right? And, and so when, when, you, uh, when you come to this text then about the advantage of being a Jew, then now all of a sudden they're sitting there going, uh, um, actually, no, we can keep it at least in part. And uh, the sign, these national identities, these signs of circumcision, these signs of, 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 uh, of observing the various natures of the law, um, we, we can actually do those things. And, and so the advantage for them was, no, yep, we're, uh, we can keep this. Um, but then when you actually look at it, it's like, hey, it's not just enough that you intend to keep the law, you actually have to keep it at every point in order to be righteous. But that's not the way that they really saw it. There was, it, was, it had been watered down to a to-do list when really at the heart of the law was not necessarily a to-do list at the heart of the law, which we'll see in a second, is a testimony about one who is to come. Right? Hence the entire sacrificial system, hence the entire you know, uh, kind of uh, worship to Yahweh, the, the sacrificing of animals, the bring this, the confess this, the blood, the day of atonement, all of these things um, were picturing, they were imaging something that was to come. And so <clears throat> Paul then goes in, in, the, in uh, the next section of chapter three and he says, well then, is God just? Because as a Jew, if you're hearing this letter being read to you when you're in Rome, then the natural question is, is well, if, then if God's gonna, if, if just because I haven't kept the law, God has made promises. And so does that mean that God is unjust, that he condemns me, right? If, if he, verse five, if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what are we gonna say that God is unjust in bringing wrath on us? And then he says, I'm, I'm, using, I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we're being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let's do evil so that good may result. And so it's almost like, well, okay, cool. Then if I can't keep the law, but God gives me the law and me not keeping the law brings him glory, then why is he mad at me? Right? which I've never really understood that argument because God makes good out of everything. So whether you do evil or you do good, God's going to make it good. That's what he does. So the only person who suffers with this mentality, which is very much alive and well today, right? The only person who suffers with the mentality of, well, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. God will make it all right, whatever. That'll bring him glory. So I'm just not gonna worry about it. This kind of cheap grace mentality of licentiousness of ah, whatever, God will work it out at the end. It's all good. Um, the, the only person who suffers with that kind of thinking, it's not the gospel, it's you. You're the one who suffers because of that. Right? Which is why Paul says, you know, um, and I, I love this statement in verse four. He's like, hey, let God be true and every man a liar, right? As, as we all stand before God. And so he goes on and, and uh, says, well, the person who thinks like that, their condemnation is deserved. You're so, you're so disoriented away from God that you actually believe that your rebellion against him is the thing that he wants you to do. It's just that... 
I mean, Paul, he almost just like leaves it there. I'm not even gonna touch that, right? So then in verse nine, he says, well, then what do we conclude? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that the Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. So then are, are Jews better than Gentiles? And then he goes through this series from verse 10 to verse 18, where he puts these Old Testament passages, a bunch of different ones, and some of them are pieces of one and pieces of another. And he just puts it into this, this uh, kind of statement where he says, there's no one who's righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. No one seeks God. Everybody's turned away. They, they, all to, they have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Right? So you're hearing this, and now the Jews in Rome are sitting there going, ugh. That's not casting us or the Gentiles or any of us in a very good light. Right? And so Paul summarizes this section by saying, um, look, you're condemned before the law. We, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, um, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. And then he says this crazy statement. Like if I was saying this in another class I'm, I'm uh, teaching right now, which by the way, we we're doing our doctrine class on Thursday night. So I know it was a long day because y'all are here and then Thursday night, but I know some of y'all are coming. I um, would encourage y'all to check that out. It's week two of Know What You Believe, which is our doctrine class, but that's tonight in the loft. But, but I was just saying, I was telling them last week, it's like, I, if this is, this is one thing that if I could go back in time, there'd be a bunch of different historical things that I would go back in one experience, right? But just to sit in the house church in Rome when this letter is read, being a Jew, Right? And hearing Paul say what he's about to say, it's almost like one of those Paul's going along and then all of a sudden he just drops the mic. Right? And everybody's like, oh, dang, uh, what'd you just say? And also probably um, he, whoever is reading the letter might read this and then be like, I'm just gonna set this down and go away because y'all are kind of angry right now. Right? That's just the way that I think it probably went down. Um, but he says this, two Jews who all their lives have believed that righteousness could be gained through the law. Verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. So, oh, by the way, you guys who at the very center of your national identity is your relationship to the law, I'm telling you the law is powerless to gain you righteousness before God. Um, fundamentally because you can't keep the law, right? So through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Uh, in other places in the New Testament, call, Paul calls the law the tutor, the teacher, the one that leads us to our need for Christ. So a proper understanding of the law is not that you can keep the law, your good deeds outweigh your bad ones in some kind of justice scale that we're all living in our lives. The answer is no, um, that's, that's not even possible. The fact is, is that all of us on that scale are guilty with our mouths shut before a righteous God. And so everybody's sitting there listening to this letter being read and they're like, Dang, man, get to some good news, right? <laughs> Gee whiz, the Jews are guilty, the Gentiles are guilty, everybody's guilty. Um, and so now, in picking up from chapter one, verse 17, Paul picks this up in chapter three, verse 21. 
but now. That's cool. That turn, that turn has, has just turned the last couple of chapters on their heels, right? We're all, we're all desperate. We're all in need of something. So, somebody save us from this mess that we're in. And Paul says, but now, right? And the, and the, and the background music starts playing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I'm trying to think of Rocky right now, but I can't remember. I, I would, y'all don't want me to sing a Rocky deal anyway. Um, but the, the background music starts playing. You're like, oh, snap. Somebody's fitting to come in here, right? <laughs> and he's like, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Right? So what is the righteousness of God? Well, I think that um, in, in the broader kind of meta narrative or the whole story of scripture, the, the righteousness of God is just God's saving activity. It's his interaction with us in saying, now I am going to declare you right and just. We see this as early as Genesis 15, 6, right? Where Abraham placed his faith in God and that faith was credited to him as what? As righteousness, right? You are in a right standing with me. I have declared you and have made you to be a righteous person. And, and so I think that there is that concept of righteousness, but I think that the reason that the but now of, of, of verse 21 shows up is because Jesus showed up. The embodiment of the righteousness of God showed up as a Jew and said, hey guys, none of y'all can keep the law, but I can Oh, by the way, I'm not just keeping the law, I wrote the law. And oh, by the way, see John 5, 39, um, all of the law and the prophets testify about who? About Jesus. So the embodiment of the righteousness of God lands on the earth. <laughs> our Savior, our Messiah has come, but now, Jesus I love 1 John 2, 1. It says, we have an advocate with the Father. The one, the one whom we are stand silent before God, um, guilty according to the law. We have an advocate with that Father. And that is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. But now righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law. But that law and the prophets have testified about it. This righteousness um, that, that, we're, that we're talking about is, it's almost like God said, hey, all of my sons that I created and put on the earth, see Genesis 1 and 2, right? All of my sons and daughters that I've created and put them on the earth, they have become traitors. They have become those who do not and will not and don't even want to keep the law. Right? We're fallen. We're guilty before God. And so the father said, hey, let's go get our traitor. Let's go get the traitors and turn them back into sons, turn them back into daughters. So this, this quote from Lewis that I love, it said, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. There's this reversal activity that Jesus is doing, but now a righteousness of God apart from the law has appeared, and that righteousness, being the son of God, is here to make you from a traitor back into a son. That's what he's doing. And, and he has done it. <laughs> Second point, the justification is free by grace through faith in the sacrifice of the son. 20, verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to everyone who believes. 
right? It only comes through faith in Jesus Christ, but it is available to everyone who believes. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And a lot of times we just like pull that verse out of there and that's so horrible, ah, right? Keep reading. (laughs) All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice so God's goodness and justness, it remains, Right, Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. The justification, the salvation that, that is, is, uh, takes away our guilt in, our, in, in regard to our standing with the law and presents us back as sons before God is the gift of God that comes by faith through the grace of God, through the sacrifice of the one man, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Right? And the only thing, the only proper response to that is to stand in front of God and be like, Lord, you are both the just one, your goodness, your rightness in all of this is is untarnished, right? And yet, um, the only place where you're gonna find a God who is just and good and right and also um, a God who loves and wants to reconcile you to himself, the only place you're gonna find that in all of its fullness with the rightness of God and the love of God being poured out at the simultaneously at the same time is at the cross of Jesus. Jesus is dying on the cross to take the penalty of the sin that has been, that, that has been revealed by our standing against the law. He is taking the wrath of God and making a way for us to be reconciled back to the Father. We see both the justice of God and the love of God in their fullness at the cross of Christ. Well, then, Paul anticipates this last question. Well, then, can we boast? Where is boasting? Where is a, a, hey, look at me, Hey, look at my works. Hey, look at what I've done. Where is that? What Paul says, I can just, I can feel this like dripping off the page. I'm I'm surprised he didn't use stronger language than this. Maybe he did. And um, uh, uh, Tertius, the the amanuensis, or the guy that wrote down the letter, right? Um, He may have like translated this down to something more uh, acceptable. But he just said, he said, it's excluded. It's not there. On what principle? On the observing of the law? no. Faith, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yep, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Look, guys, I think when we, you know, it's, it's interesting because uh, there, there's probably, not probably, I know, there are some of you guys in here that all your life you may have grown up in a Christian household or a Christian subculture, right, where going to church was just the thing that you did. 
You, know, you, you may have associated your faith with your parents or a sibling or a friend or, or yeah, I've, I've just always gone to church. You know? Or we get into this mentality of, 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 of a, a lot of times when, when we ask these questions about, hey, I, you know, what do you say to God when you stand before him? Um, and a lot of us would just say, well, I think that you know, my, my resume would do pretty good. You know, we compare ourselves to one another. At least I'm not as bad as that guy over there. Um, at, least, at least what I've done lately is, uh, I feel like it outweighs the bad things that I've done lately, right? You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. All, all of us in some varying degrees think like this, right? And, and what I'm here to tell you this morning on the authority of scripture and just the reality of who God is, right, is that um, all, all you have and all that you bring to God is nothing, You bring nothing. That's not a knock against you. I mean, as a man, it's like, hey, you know what you have? You have nothing. And as guys, we're like, what? What'd you say? I'm just like, hey, like, seriously, all I have, all I bring to the cross, I promise you, is nothing. And, and I would just invite you guys, man, if, if that's been you your whole life, and you've never, with, a, with desperation, stood before the cross of Jesus Christ and independence on him said, I bring nothing. If I'm going to be saved, you have to save me. I bring nothing. I cannot boast in anything. If that's you this morning, guys, what I would tell you is Jesus loves you. That's why he died on the cross for you because he knows that you can bring nothing and he wants to be your advocate before the father to bring you and reconcile you back into the relationship that you were created for. And so if, if, you've, if you've dealt with this kind of surface level cultural Christianity your whole life and you've never been reconciled to the Father, you've never stood before him in dependence and said, I bring nothing, you have to save me. Man, I, I implore you as an ambassador of God, be reconciled to him this morning. Don't wait. Because guess what? If you're not reconciled to him and you leave here, guess what you have? You still have nothing. If you, if you reconcile to the Father through, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, this morning you leave here with everything. And you can actually be, begin to be the man that God created you to be through the empowering presence and work of the Holy Spirit. And then my other statement, and I'll close with this, is, is to the guys who have been reconciled to God. Right? Galatians chapter three, verse three is a really interesting verse. It says, it says, you foolish Galatians, who tricked you? You began by the spirit, but now you're trying to complete your own salvation in the flesh, right? And what I would tell you guys is, look, a lot of times we think we have this weird concept of, oh, Jesus saved me, thank you, God. Okay, now I have to, now I have to work to complete myself, and what I would tell you is the exact same thing I just told all those other guys. All you have and all you bring is nothing. When you're indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit, guess what you have in your own flesh all by yourself? You have nothing. Empowered, though, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, you are able to walk in step with the Spirit who then transforms you. And so I, I would just tell all of us, man, uh, you know, when we, when we, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And, and when we make that initial statement of faith to confess Jesus as Lord and receive the forgiveness of God, 
right? That is step one in continuing to do that all the time. I'm still saying, I stand at the foot of the cross, dependent, desperate for Jesus to the one who began this work in me to complete it, right? And he's doing it, not me. Now it is our job to cooperate with him, which is a whole other subject. (laughs) But today, um, in in looking at Romans 3, um, a righteousness of God apart from the law has appeared, this one man, Jesus Christ. And by grace, through faith alone, we stand before him um, saved if, if you are in Christ. Well, Father, thanks for this passage. Thanks for uh, these guys waking up early and coming to, um, to dive into your scriptures and to uh, encourage one another and sharpen one another. And I just pray that um, this morning, if there are those guys who um, have always played church or they've played Christianity or they, or they really do in their minds think that they can present something to you that's worth anything um, in regard to salvation, I, I pray that you would save them. And for those of us who have been saved and are being saved, I pray that our posture would be one, not of working hard to please you, but to continue to have the posture of dependence, knowing that um, even the work that's being done in us now is accomplished Um, by you through the work of your spirit. So help us, Lord. Man, help us. We need help. But we're grateful for your son and your spirit who indwells us. In Jesus' name, by the power of that spirit, we pray. Amen.